Lewis came off out of that car, walked straight up to, well, not straight up to me, he had to do the weigh-in and the podium and all the rest of it. But after that, came to see me and said, Matt, do the maths, do the maths. If we win, if I win every single race for the rest of this season, can I still be champion? Can I still be champion? It's lights out and away we go! Hello and welcome to the Cut to the Race podcast. Today with us we have Emma, Will, Matt, we're, but we're not actually that interested about that because we have a special guest. Matt Bishop from Aston Martin F1 team. How are you, sir? Very well, and how are you? I'm good, thank you. I- I'm really good. Thank you for joining our show. It's, it, it's an honour to have you on and we've got some uh, very, very uh, good questions lined up for you. So we, we're going to start with you today. Normally we start with the news on our show uh, and we talk and have a little gossip about what's going on in the, in the uh, F1 world. But today we're going to go straight to you because I think you're a bit more interesting than the news this week, to be honest with you. So uh, that's... Uh... You're being far too... Ge- I'm scared now. You're obviously going to ask me you started off with all this uh, flattery, and now you're going to give me some horrible <laughs> questions. Yes, we yeah. figured if we were scared, you had to be as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, for the listeners that don't or don't know you, Matt, uh, do you want to just give us a little overview of yourself? Well, look, uh, in terms of my Formula One time, you mean? Yes. Yeah. So, look, I've been in Formula One for I don't know, 25 years or so, a bit more. Um, I started off as a journalist and then um, became an editor, editor and journalist, uh, first of all for, you know, for, for F1 Racing, which is now called GP Racing, uh, but I also had a column on Autosport in the magazine, the paper magazine, and uh, on the website, and I ended up being part of the team that kind of developed the website, really, with... Um, um, well, John Noble, for instance, is still very much involved, as you know. And then I went to the dark side. I, uh, I was uh, hired by Ron Dennis, um, and he was very personally hired by Ron Dennis. We had, um, uh, and I joined McLaren uh, as, uh, and spent 10 years there as communications director. And then, um, then I did two years at uh, W Series, very different, which we may or may not have time to talk about. I know you're a Formula One podcast, but we could talk about it. It is interesting. And then literally only about six weeks ago, I started at um, Aston Martin Cognizant Formula One team, uh, which, of course, is a team that I've known for so long. I mean, the founder, Eddie Jordan, I know very well. In fact, I missed a call from him at five in the morning this morning. I don't know what he's thinking about. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, uh, so I did. I, I woke up and saw that I, you know, o five o seven or something. Call Miss Call Eddie Jordan. Um, anyway, uh, he was always a bit of a weird one, old Eddie. I love him very much. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be listening. <laughs> anyway, he founded the eponymous team in 1991, as you know, and then it went via Midland and Spiker and Force India and Racing Point, and it always punched above its weight. Uh, and I always admired it, actually. Uh, uh, and now I'm working for it. But, of course, now it's got, um, sorry, Eddie, a much better name over the door, Aston Martin. And to be involved with Aston Martin, bringing back, because it is back, 
bringing back, you know, one of the world's most prestigious and admired automotive brands back to Formula One, the top tier of global motorsport after an absence of 61 years. That's got to be something that you'd want to be involved in. And I'm incredibly privileged to be involved in it. And I can't wait, you know, for us to launch our car, which is coming very soon. And then to go racing. Matt, I have known you for a couple of years now. We actually met um, at Autosport a couple of years ago when you were launching W Series and I was a budding writer. Um, so that's that's where where I met you to begin with. But how did you actually get um, into to motorsport? Is it something that you've always been interested in um, that led you into a career in journalism and then Formula One? No. Uh, a lot of people... Particularly, you know, I'm 58. So my generation, uh, a lot of boys um, were, you know, taken to motor races by their dads. Sometimes their mums and sometimes girls. But in my generation, it was often a thing that dads took their sons to. Uh, That wasn't the case for me at all. Um, My dad is a concert pianist, um, musician, has absolutely zero interest in Formula One. He doesn't mind cars absolutely zero interest or understanding comprehension or even patience with it actually completely <laughs> uninterested. totally uninterested and um anyway he and my mother split up when i was two so he wasn't much around at that time but i was one of these nerdy kids that walked down the road um you know, toddled down the road as, as a, really as a young toddler two or three years old Pointing out car, I'd say Austin Cambridge, Morris Oxford, Wolsey Hornet. You know, I, of course, these brands are, uh, completely date me now. But but I would be able to pick them out uh, like that as a kid. But I didn't know there was a thing called motor racing. You have to realise I was born in 1962. And in those days, in the 60s, motor racing, Formula One, was a minority sport. I mean, a real minority sport. We now look back at, at, with rose-tinted spectacles at the wonderful exploits of people like Sterling Moss and Jim Clark, Jackie Stewart, and so on. But it wasn't on the television. It wasn't even reported in the newspapers. On television, until 1978 in the UK, only the Monaco Grand Prix and the British Grand Prix were on. Just occasionally another one might be on. Yeah. Really. So let's say the let's say the nineteen seventy three Brazilian Grand Prix, for the sake of argument. It wasn't on television in UK. Not even at all. No highlights, no nothing. It also wouldn't have been the result might well not have been broadcast on the radio or on the news. It wouldn't have been in the paper the next day either. It just might have been. It wouldn't have been in the Sun or the Mail or the Mirror or the Express. It just might have been in the Daily Telegraph in four point at the very, very end with the croquet and the bowls, you know, those kind of sports. And even then, it wouldn't say, uh, there would not be a report. It would just say, First, Emerson, Fittipaldi, Lotus, Ford. Second, whoever it was. Third, whoever it was. It wouldn't say who was on pole. It wouldn't say 
um, that, you know, Carlos Reutemann had led the first 40 laps and then his engine had expired, it might not even say if somebody had been killed. Good Lord. It was really, really, really minority. You would begin to find out about those things later. And you had to buy auto car on the Wednesday or auto sport on the Thursday to find out. Now, I'm giving you that background because it really, in the 60s and, uh, and early 70s, that's what it was like. At school, there wasn't a single person who was interested in Formula 1 and probably hadn't even heard of it. But I remember I was a keen footballer and I... What my mum gave me uh, a choice of one magazine that I could have as part of my pocket money, and I chose Shoot. Shoot was a weekly magazine football. And I went to the newsagent one day to collect my copy of Shoot, and I saw this magazine on the desk, Autosport. And I looked at it, and I think it was in about 72 or 73. I was probably about 10, something like that. And I looked at this car, which I'd never seen the like of before. I now know what it was, Jackie Stewart's Tyrrell. But uh, there was this blue car with huge tyres and a great big airbox and with a man's head sticking out the top of it. I'd never seen it. You have to realise, it, it was impossible to see these things. I just stared at it and I asked the news agent, I said, what's that? Autosport, mate. But what's that? What's the, the car racing? I didn't know. You have to realise it was that minority. And I said, can I swap my, my um, pocket money from shoot to autosport? And that was when I was about 10. And so that swap was effected. And I probably haven't actually missed a copy of autosport uh, over the past half century, whether I've got them all or whatever. <laughs> probably looked at them all. and um, A true enthusiast. Uh, yes, 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 yes. And I realised that was an epiphany for me. That moment was an epiphany. I realised how extraordinarily unusual it was. I thought a sport had been invented specifically to cater for my very, very eccentric <laughs> peculiarities, which were that I was interested in both cars and sport in this way. And I didn't realise they could be combined. And I remember then going to school and talking, everyone thought I was, it would be equivalent now of an 11-year-old who went in and tried to persuade his mates to get awfully excited about croquet. They think he was a weirdo, wouldn't they? <laughs> that strikes me as eerily similar to the American coverage of F1 now, unfortunately. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean... Of course, it is very different now, globally, but particularly in the UK. But we can talk about that. Much of that had to do with James Hunt um, in 1976. With your time as communications officer at McLaren, that kind of helped set the stage and molded your relationships with the prominent figures of the sport. How has that altered your writing style to be so conscientious of the mission, objective, and statements of that team? I went to the dark side. You know, uh, I was a journalist, and I, I, I still regard myself as a journalist and a writer. And, in fact, I've written a novel quite recently, um, which not a lot of PR people have done. And the subject matter is very different, by the way, as if in case you, you may or may not have read it. But, um, look, I think there is no job in the world more fun than being a Formula One journalist. 
No job in the world more fun, particularly, if I may say so, at the time I was doing it. Prior to digital, uh, you know, there weren't websites when I started off doing it. And there was a, a magazine that I was the editor of called F1 Racing. And it was the best-selling Formula One magazine in the world. It was the best-selling motorsport magazine in the world. And just this little group of mates, because that's what we were, me, uh, Peter Windsor, Darren Heath, great photographer, um, Tom Clarkson, various others, many of whom, of course, are still involved in the sport, as you know, um, and some who are no longer with us. Alan Henry, great friend, passed away, lovely man. And um, we just decided, what are we going to put in our magazine? And what are we going to say about these people? And the world had to pay attention. So it was, it was enormous fun. And we did make mistakes, of course. Formula One then, as now, is very secretive. You know, journalists ask questions, they don't always get the answers. Uh, and they have to try and extrapolate as best they can. And you sometimes get it right, you sometimes don't. Uh, and that's something that teams don't actually necessarily always understand. You know, they complain, look, they've got, he's got that wrong. Yeah, but when they asked about it, we said that we wouldn't give the answer. So what do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you think about it. And I think it's given me an advantage as a comms man, having had such a long time as a journalist prior to being a comms man. I think, I think it's, a very great, it's a very great advantage to a comms person to have had a, uh, a long stint as a journalist. Uh, poacher turned gamekeeper, it does help. You understand... Uh, the process better if you've been looking at it from both sides so your question wasn't exactly that i know and perhaps i've slightly evaded it and answered a different question but it's vaguely adjacent <laughs> it's vaguely adjacent my own writing style i mean you know uh, I, I love writing but in, in much of one's time as a pr person or a comms person you know you're not really writing you're writing corporate writing aren't you you're writing press releases and so on and so forth it's a skill it might not be an art. Um, whereas I think, I do think that writing journalism, even specialist journalism, um, even very specialist journalism, is an art as well as a skill. And I'll certainly claim that writing a novel is an art as well as a skill. Doesn't mean I'm any good at it, but, um, <laughs> but, but it's an art as well as a skill. I've certainly been enjoying it so far, Matt, so... <laughs> The vast majority would beg to differ on that. No, I've I've noticed in in the background. I think I can see a, a Lewis Hamilton at McLaren. I think uh, on on the wall, which which brings me to, to to that topic. Which during your time at McLaren, you were there when Lewis obviously started, and you saw him evolve and, and change begin begin his domination in Formula One. So what was that like seeing young Lewis come in against Fernando Alonso and, and taking on um, the established drivers? Well, I'll, I'll do better than that. Look, I'll angle that up and you can see there. So that's, you've seen Lewis, that's um, Lewis, a picture of Lewis on the wall. You can't quite see, but those are the boots that Lewis wore to win the 2011 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Good heavens. So there we are. I put them in a little box. So there we go. Now I'll hide them again. But um, the, the, um, I've got a few bits and bobs. And those are mostly motor racing books behind me. I have lots of books, but mostly motor racing. Not all, but mostly. 
so, Lewis, look, actually, I didn't join McLaren until the very end of 2007. So I wasn't there for his first year. But, of course, I was reporting on it, and I'd been a journalist for a long time already. I was hired to McLaren because of Spygate, um, which was when uh, ah. McLaren were found to be in possession of 780 pages of Ferrari IP, as you remember. And they had a bit of a nightmare going on. Uh, and they Ron decided he wanted a strategic comms director. And fortunately, uh, he, he really had to have somebody who he knew and trusted and could do it. And it so happened that those three circles on the Venn diagram intersected at only one person, actually. <laughs> but he knew, trusted, and had the experience and contacts to do it. So luckily, I got the job. But anyway... You asked me about Lewis Hamilton, and I'll tell you about Lewis Hamilton. I worked, obviously, with him from 2008 to 2012, uh, five seasons, worked very closely with him and got to know him very well. First of all, I have always said that there were three drivers that I couldn't separate in history. And you know I love the history of the sport, as well as the present. But I've always said there are three drivers that I couldn't separate, which were Fangio... Clark and Senna from different eras. So obviously Fanjo from the 50s, Clark from the 60s, and Senna from the 80s and 90s. But I'm going to put Hamilton in there now. I think you have to. I think Lewis Hamilton, not just arithmetically because of the magnum opus and what he's achieved, but the scintillating pace of the man the fact that he has always dominated his teammates, including his first teammate when he was a rookie. Okay, he only scored a few more points and they both had four wins each. I'm talking about Alonso in 2007. But to do that against a man who had just won, who was a double world champion and in fact just won the last two world championships, and to come in as a 22-year-old rookie and do that, sensational. And he's never had a season without a win. And he hasn't always had great cars. I know he has in recent years, but I remember 2009 very, very well. There's a technical term for what that McLaren was. Shitbox was the technical <laughs> term. And That's from the Mickey Lauder dictionary, isn't it? <laughs> yes. For the, for the first half of the season, that was what it was. And yet he absolutely ragged it. And it, it was fantastic. I'll tell you, look, so first of all, I'm saying that Lewis Hamilton is up there and there's now four drivers, not three, that I would say are is inseparably, inseparably brilliant. And I know people will disagree and say, what about Moss and what about Prost and what about Schumacher? Okay, we can have that argument. It'd be much nicer if we had a nice glass of wine to have it over. But <laughs> for me, those four, and of course I rate all the other ones I've just mentioned as well. But I'll tell you a few stories about Lewis. I mean, first of all, brilliantly quick. Nobody, even his detractors, can can, can say anything about that. Brilliantly quick. Uh, super successful. But a little anecdote I'm going to tell you is around 2009, when we had such a bad car to start with, McLaren. And he had already been ahead of Heike Kovalainen when the car was good the previous year. But in 2009, when the car was not good, the gap between them grew. And I think that was not only, you know, Lewis 
who was obviously able to drive fast, a fast car, but also was able to grab a not fast car by the scruff, uh, 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 which we haven't seen much in recent years because he hasn't been called upon to do that because the Merck has been so good. But I remember when we finally got to Hungary and the McLaren team, McLaren engineers, had just little by little, in iterative ways, had improved that car. And it wasn't good in fast circuits. It had been all right at Monaco, but it had been terrible lots of places, terrible at Silverstone, embarrassingly at home, terrible um, uh, uh, in many fast circuits. We got to Hungary and we slightly fancied ourselves. We thought we just might be able to spring a British surprise because, of course, the Hungaroring is twisty and slow. And if you remember, what happened is Lewis won. He won the race. And most of us, if we're honest, were feeling <sighs> relief. That was the overriding emotion from Ron Dennis down. Everyone, relief. Thank God mm. we haven't had a disgrace of a season. We've won a race. With one exception, Lewis. Lewis came off out of that car, walked straight up to, well, not straight up to me, he had to do the weigh-in and the podium and all the rest of it. But after that, came to see me and said, Matt, do the maths, do the maths. If we win, if I win every single race for the rest of this season, can I still be champion? Can I still be champion? Do the maths, do it now, do the maths. <laughs> and I thought that's so indicative of how Lewis was and is. Mm. You know, he wasn't at all relieved. Relief wasn't part of the makeup. It was, can I now go and win the world championship again? Good Lord. And that is how he is. That is how he is. And that is the mark of a winner. And Lewis Hamilton is a winner. And I remember at the end of the time we spent uh, uh, with Lewis in our team in McLaren, 2012, of course, being the last, uh, the last year, Anyway, he won a few races that year, and then we knew he was going off to Mercedes. And I was disappointed. Didn't blame him, uh, because, you know, a change is sometimes necessary. And he'd been with us for so long. He joined the team, really, at age 13. Really. And, you know, here he was, 26 or whatever he was. And I think, you know, that it was a rites of passage. He wanted to go and do something else. And, of course, history's proved him right. But a lot of commentators at the time thought he was making a very bad decision. In fact, hindsight has now proved that it was the right decision, very much so. But I remember thinking at the time, you know, we're, we're missing a trick here. We should not let him go. And there were people saying, oh, well, he's got too big for his boots. In McLaren, I mean. Uh, and he's quite difficult. And guess what he was? He was difficult, and he probably still is. But you need to have the best driver. That's what you need to have. And then you earn your money coping with those difficult aspects of that person's character. The way I always put it is this. If we were making movies in the 1950s, would we want Clark Gable and Marilyn Monroe in our movie? We would. Would they be very easy on the set? No, they'd be, <laughs> they'd be a complete nightmare, total nightmare. But we'd have them because we'd have a blockbuster, because they play well at box office. And then we would earn our money 
by looking after them, making sure that somebody has peeled Marilyn's grapes and everything's happening the way Clark wants it. But you wouldn't want a B-movie actor in an A-movie, A-movie, and you wouldn't want uh, anyone other than Lewis Hamilton in your team. Of course, you'd also want Lance Stroll and uh, and Sebastian Vettel, but I'm talking about <laughs> there's there's the oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't I can't help it, but but at McLaren in those days, what you wanted was Lewis Hamilton, and it was a great shame when he left. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break and then I'm just going to pick on that point about those other two names that you've mentioned. And uh, I want to get some thoughts on those two. Welcome back. As we said, we are with Matt Bishop today and he's talking about... Some, some interesting things from over the years. Um, we've, been, we've spoken a bit about McLaren, Lewis Hamilton. Um, I want now to get into, get into some of the juicy information about what is now Aston Martin F1. So how does this team vary from what was Racing Point last year? Well, obviously, I didn't work for Racing Point last year. Um, I've only just started. I'm both an old boy and a new boy. Um, Old boy in Formula One terms, but uh, but new boy to the team. I've been at the team since January the first, uh, and it, you know I, I I had worked as a journalist for years and uh, and for McLaren and then W Series. But I had a couple of meetings with Lawrence Stroll, which I found fascinating. Fascinating character, I think very very impressive. Obviously, I wouldn't have joined if I hadn't thought that. Very impressive, limitless ambition, limitless. And I suppose that's what attracted me to the team because I thought, I've always admired the team. I've always thought they punched above their weight back in the Eddie Jordan days, uh, but all the way through. And I have great admiration for Otmar Safnauer and Andrew Green and uh, Andy Stevenson, who I know quite well, and many of the others. Uh, And really that team, in order to take the next step, I mean, it was fourth in the constructors last year and really should have been third. And as near as damn it was third, had the car to be third. And But to make that next step is huge. It's incredibly difficult to go to second and, of course, first. It's incredibly difficult. But the thing that um, impressed me is that, I mean, Lawrence Stroll will benchmark any business that he's involved with in no way negatively against anyone. So he's not frightened or fearful about Mercedes-Benz or Ferrari or Red Bull or McLaren or any of these other grandee names. And we are now a grandee name, by the way, you know, to bring Aston Martin back to Formula One after an absence of 61 years, one of the greatest brands in the world in an automotive terms, Aston Martin, incredibly exciting. So my answer is compared with Racing Point, because all the Racing Point people are there and all the great things about Racing Point are still there. And all it needed, I think, was new overall leadership with limitless ambition, and that is being provided by Lawrence Stroll, and more money. 
and that too is being provided by Lawrence Stroll, and also, by the way, by Aston Martin, in this sense, in the sense that if you pick up the phone to a sponsor and say, hello, I am Racing Point, would you like to sponsor us? They say, Racing what? What? Mm. What's that? (laughs) Whereas if you say, we are Aston Martin, we are entering Formula One for the first time for 61 years, would you like to be on our journey? Yes, we would like to talk to you about that. You're the James Bond chaps. This is probably a good move for us, yeah. (laughs) And between now and when we launch our car, which will be in early March, this is a Valentine's Day massacre that you've done. (laughs) Anyway, um, so when it goes out, between today, today, not tomorrow, today, the 14th of February, and when we launch our car in early March, we will make a number of um, sponsor partner announcements. And that is because people, uh, I think, are beginning to like what they see of what is happening at our team. They can see that Lawrence Stroll means business, big time, limitless ambition. They can see that we've brought in a four-time world champion, 53 Grand Prix winner, Sebastian Vettel. I personally think that Lance Stroll is incredibly talented and I think that uh, it's going to be exciting to see the way he develops and uh, uh, and I think people have underestimated that boy. I think he's a serious prospect. And with the money that the new sponsors will bring and with Lawrence's leadership, I don't see any reason to negatively benchmark against us, against anyone else. Now, I'm not. Am I predicting immediate success? No. Rome wasn't built in a day. It takes time. It's difficult. Uh, improvements are iterative and gradual, and the target is not stationary because we have huge respect for our competitors and they are also working as hard as they can and they're brilliant people and well-funded i'm talking about mercedes and red bull and ferrari and mclaren and so on so it's not a static target uh but we are going to back ourselves to catch them up our target for this year has to be third i mean it'd be limp if it wasn't because we nearly nearly had third last year so our target has to be third doesn't mean i'm predicting it but it has to be our target. But then stepping up to second and first, all I will say is I won't say when, but Lawrence Stroll would not be in any business if he wasn't aiming to achieve at that level at some time. You've just touched upon my my next question, Matt, actually. Um, You know, there has been a lot of talk that Aston Martin will, will not want to be coming into the grid feeling like a midfield team they will want to be challenging the top teams. What do you think is probably the realistic expectations, especially with the the rule changes coming in, you know, this year and then the bigger ones next year? Um, What do you think are the realistic expectations for the team? Well, there are not that many rule changes for this year. There are some, of course, basically performance trimming uh, rules, but not, not, um, not, not huge. Very big ones, obviously, yes, for 2022. But um, well, I'm not going to make uh, precise predictions. It's foolish. It, it, it really is foolish to do because um, there's too many conflicting variables. People have sometimes said, oh, do you think you'll beat your old team, McLaren? Well, that would presume that one knows, A, how good one's own car is going to be, and B, theirs. How could one possibly say? It's a foolish mm. 
Mm. Um, obviously, it's something people will watch because two big names, Aston Martin and McLaren, both with the same engine in the back. So it will be of interest, but I'm not making prediction. I would say that we will be up there, you know, and that's what Otmar says. And you've probably seen he's been interviewed and he's said that. Uh, we will be up there. We aim for third. We're not predicting third, but we aim for third. And my goodness, 2022 is going to be fascinating. But it, it, I just hope it's going to improve competition because whoever wins is not ideal if the same person always wins, much mm. as I love Lewis. <laughs> You went on a progress. So like yourself, I'm very, very much interested in the history of F1. And something that is always, uh, I always love learning about is the relationship between drivers and, and their team and the public. You know, Jim Clark for me is a, a huge hero. Um, and uh, and that just speaks to me that, you know, a really honest boy. And he communicated with his limited, admittedly, at that time fan base. So um, with your roles with Lewis, as you've spoken very affectionately earlier, and now with your uh, your new role, Aston Martin, you do work very closely with drivers, and we know that Sebastian Vettel, he's not hes not overly keen on social media, which is a shame because uh, I think a lot of us in the UK would love to see him uh, kind of give a bit more of a personal side. Um, Lance Stroll does seem to be quite quite into that, but it's difficult for a lot of us to get to know them on a personal level, you know, because there is that divide. So I was just wondering if you could sort of enlighten enlighten me as a, as a youngster as to you know how how are those how are those drivers in person and and how have they maybe um, influenced I don't know the way that you deal with people or uh, or or the way that you look at look at different things in life. Well, they vary so much. Um, you asked about Sebastian and Lance. I'll just quickly say, yeah, Sebastian isn't a fan. Doesn't seem to be a, a, a fan or a devotee of social media. Um, each to his own. That's that's life. He's he's also very. Um, uh, he's fun, he's witty, uh, and we've seen him on television being very fun. I've, I remember him also, uh, you know, at the Autosport Awards one evening doing brilliant Kimi Raikkonen impressions. You know, yes. <laughs> which you may have seen as well. Um, yeah. uh, so he's a very witty person and, uh, and, and also hugely intelligent. You know, um, I've heard the phrase performance engineer behind the wheel which I think is a good way of describing his approach. And Lance, yeah, Lance is, you know, they, they are very different in age. You know, Seb is 50% older than Lance, do the math, 22 and 32. So it's quite a big gap. But um, uh, Lance, fantastic potential and, yeah, a bit more, bit more open, as you'd expect from a person that age, to, mm. to social media. And we'll probably see a bit more of that now. Now, going... Your broader question, I mean, it's very difficult to answer a question, what are drivers like, which is in a sense what your question was, because, of course, they vary so very much. Formula One drivers um, have, have an abnormal life. Obviously, they have an abnormal life. And one of the interesting things to trace is when they retire and then have to become ex-Formula One drivers. Now, they may still be you know, by all normal standards, very, very wealthy men, even though they're not earning at those levels anymore, but they've managed to squirrel away quite a lot. And they won't have to, you know, go and work in McDonald's, obviously, but they may have to go to work. And then you see a difference. And I remember something David Coulthard said to me once, which is, I now realise I'm not as witty as I thought I was. And I said, why is that? He said, because when I was a Formula One driver, I only had to say the word bum 
and everyone will fall about laughing. <laughs> and it actually isn't that funny, is it? And now I have to work harder if I want to make someone laugh because they were kind of, you know, kowtowing to me. And I think that is quite a, a thing, not just in Formula One, but in sport, in showbiz, mm. anyone who has fame. In fact, I have a theory that people... The, the, the rate of people's maturation slows the moment they become seriously famous. Michael Jackson. Just think about that for a second. You know, think about when he became properly famous and what kind of an adult did he become. Now, that's at one obvious extreme. But I think being famous is not... Being very famous is not particularly easy... Uh, and um, is quite a is quite a challenge for people, and that that does apply that does apply to to all sports people. But um, I've never worked with this is this is absolutely true to say I have never worked with a Formula One driver that I didn't like. Hmm. I've liked all the Formula One drivers that I've worked with. Doesn't mean to say that I've liked every single Formula One driver that I've met in my whole life, <laughs> but, but every single one I've worked with. Um, I, I have liked and 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 could see, uh, you know, the 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 uh, the nervily brilliant man within, and that's what they all are. They are utterly brilliant, but like all of us, they you know they they have their nervy moments as well. But uh, I've got, I would say, I'm, you know, I have I have a, only a few that I would regard as real friends. Um, but there's a number that I would say I'm friendly with, which is a, a different thing. Just as a, a follow-up to, to Will's question, um, from the outside, um, Lance seems to get quite a bad rep in the media, um, especially from a lot of fans. Um, do you think that like the changes within the team, you know, bringing Sebastian on board, he's a four-time world champion. He has got a huge amount of experience, ju not just on the track, but dealing with, like, the media side of things as well. And then having yourself in the team, um, would you think that will probably have a positive effect on Lance in, in regards to what, what fans, like, how fans will perceive him? I don't know Lance well yet. I mean, I, I, I don't know Sebastian well Yet, I mean, I used to. I used to interview him. As far as Lance is concerned, um, you know, I know him less well. So I, I would, I would, I might annoy you, but I would probably hold fire on that answer because I, I, I don't feel, you know, ask me again in three months when I would you know him better. Would you pop back on to give us your yeah. answer? Okay, okay. okay. I, I, th I think, uh, look, I genuinely think he is seriously talented. You know, um, there's a lot that goes together, has to come together to make a, 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 a great Formula One driver. And, you know, he is 11 years younger than Sebastian. But in terms of talent, I think he's absolutely right there. But mm -hmm. ask me again when I've, when I've got to know him. 
as you know, you know, Emma's our kind of our writer for the team. Um, Ollie does uh, a massive amount of back end stuff and also runs our podcast. And Matt's one of our personnel chaps. Um, I do all the video and it's um, something I've been doing freelance. And so one of the most interesting things about F1 to me at the moment, and it has been for the last year, um, is really the way that uh, young drivers like Lando Norris um, and in some ways a bit like uh, Pierre Gasly um, have been utilising social media and genuinely i think changing the, the 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 world's perception of their team through their personality and it's an incredibly powerful thing um so with that in mind i i had a specific question to your job which is that i wonder if you have any plans or if you know that there are any plans in place for aston martin to either go down the mclaren social media route which is very much um kind of honest with the fans uh, showing the lighter side of f1 um and just having a lot of fun with it or if you're going for the kind of alfa romeo approach which is less is more um let's take our time over this video we don't mind if it does incredible numbers because we're providing a, a set of products and our you know our fan base know that they're not bothered um i just i want want to get your feedback on that well again early days um uh, aston martin is a different brand from mclaren but uh, you know and uh, obviously an older brand you know uh, 108 years old um but also we want to use our formula 1 platform which is new to the brand just to perhaps open up some uh communication avenues that haven't always been um, so opened prior. So I would say not necessarily exactly like McLaren. McLaren is McLaren and Lando Norris is Lando Norris. And also, by the way, that we saw the, the rapport between Lando Norris and um, Carlos Sainz. And I don't think that was forced. I think that was, that, that was genuine. Natural, yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you, you know, we, we will see, but yes, look, it, it, you may have noticed that um, Rob Bloom has joined Aston Martin Cognizant Formula One, and he was at McLaren. In fact, I hired him to McLaren uh, some years ago, and now he's he's with me here. So, um, you know, we'll probably do some some of the same things, I should imagine. Excellent. You mentioned earlier, you know, the fascination you developed both as a petrol head, you know, getting into the cars, the dare I say, silent audacity of a driver hanging out of that vehicle you saw on the cover of Autosport. Uh, with us coming up as the younger generation of F1 fans, you know, we kind of have that same fascination, that same sense of heroic worship, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, however, we can't really compare Sebastian Vettel to Jackie Stewart's different eras. But going into the mindset, I know you may not be able to elucidate very much on it. Do you think the changing of environments and cars and specifically for Sebastian Vettel, that there could be a different mindset within the team and how that affects the driver or how it affects his performance, et cetera, uh, underneath the Aston Martin brand. I think he wants to have a lot of fun. Um, and for him, fun obviously includes doing well for all sports people at that level. You know, they're not going to have fun if they're doing badly, but I think he, you know, he's 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 raced successfully for a number of teams. He's won championships. He's won races. And, he, you know, he could have... He, he, we realised that he, he he wasn't going to continue where he was. That, that's, that was going to happen. He could have done a number of things. One of the things he could have done is stopped. But I think he decided, 
I mean, just the same things as I've said. He 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 spoke to Lawrence Stroll. He saw the limitless ambition. He believed in it, and he also thought it might be some fun. And I think you know, he's right. And I think that's why he joined us. Matt, we've we, we've done a whole podcast episode um, aimed to answer one question, which is asked all the time in F1, which uh, you can probably guess what I'm going to ask, but uh, is it the car or the driver? Now, with Mercedes domination, this is, it's brought up a whole sort of social media whirlwind about it's just the car. Anyone can win in that car. Um, if I ask you the question, is it the car or the driver? It's such an irritating question, isn't it? Let's be <laughs> <laughs> Preach, preach it. it well, because, look, of course it's both. We understand it's both. Of course we understand it's both. We know very, very well that um, Jim Clark was hugely successful in the 60s, but in Lotus 25s and Lotus 33s. And if you'd given him poor cars, then he wouldn't have done so well. That has applied in every era of the sport. It's applied to Juan Manuel Fangio, who was very adept at knowing when to leave a team and join another just talked about Jim Clark, who never raced in Formula 1 for anyone other than Lotus, but Lotus was always uh, among the fastest cars at that time. Senna, of course, always quick, and, and uh, always in quick cars, and now, of course, Lewis. And, and anybody else you want to mention. So, of course, it's the car. But the fascinating bit about it, surely, is the difference that the truly great drivers can make in that same car. And if you're not interested in that, then you're not interested in that. I can't do anything for you. you know, that's just not something you're interested in. Some people don't like it. Some people don't like football. Some people don't like cricket. Some people don't like golf. Um, what can you do? But I'm not mad about golf, but I wouldn't start telling you that Tiger Woods is only good because his clubs are better than <laughs> I wish you'd talk to some of our commenters, honestly. <laughs> it would be irritating if I were to do that. All I will tell you is let's talk about uh, uh, the current most successful driver is Lewis Hamilton, and he is in the current most successful car. We understand that. Would he be good in another car? Yes. Would he always win all the races in another car? No. But please explain to me, if it's only the car, why he consistently beats his very, very quick teammate. Mm. Thank you. We're, we're, we're on exactly the same page. We need to try and condense that for some of our fans because they people need to understand that. Um, From the highest authority in the land. There oh, it is. <laughs> finally. Um, so... Uh, I, I'm um, a bit of an... I like to think of myself as a bit of an old soul. I'm a big fan of kind of older things. I don't know if that makes me just not really with it. But one of my favourite TV programmes is The Saints with Roger Moore. And he goes round, as some people know... Yeah, I, I see you're a fan or you're acquainted with it. Yeah, no, anyway, yeah there's, um, there's an episode where he goes to, uh, to, to a Grand Prix. And obviously this is all filmed in the kind of uh, the late 60s, I believe. And... Um, and there's a load of people with champagne. There's these big banners. Everyone's dressed absolutely immaculately. It looks fantastic. But we've had a global recession going on for, you know, many, many, many years now. F1's changed a great deal. Um, is does, is the glamour still there? <laughs> we can't be glamorous if I'm in it, can it? Let's be honest. <laughs> no. But, um, 
you, you know, um, it's a funny, it's a funny question, in a way, because you're, you've described something that's actually a fictional depiction, um, of Amazingly. course. Uh, but, but there is something, um, you know, Monaco is a glorious irrelevance, isn't it? Uh, you know, uh, all those yachts, all those, um, uh, and the idea of tax relief riding a car around there. <laughs> I mean, which Nelson Piquet f- famously said, like riding a bicycle in a bathroom. <laughs> if somebody, if the Monaco, if the Monaco Grand Prix never existed, had never existed, and you said, "Now, um, I've got an idea. Let's run a Formula One race around there," they take you off. You know, they they, they would they would put you in a home. You would not get a proper he- hearing for that rather <laughs> extraordinary idea. Yet it exists, and it is a glorious irrelevance. I would describe it as, but. Uh, and, and still a, a sporting spectacle. It's hard to see the glamour if you're in the middle of it, and I suppose I have been in the middle of it for quite some time, but it is glamorous, uh, and so it ought to be. And I actually also share your view, which is I like wearing rose-tinted spectacles. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that I like, you know, for a long time, I don't quite have enough time to do it anymore as much as I did, but I do this hashtag on this day, such and such happens. And I like finding ludicrously arcane little details about people that nobody's ever heard of anymore. <laughs> and, um, and hopefully a nice picture. Uh, and uh, that fascinates me. But um, is it glamorous? I've never really loved the sport for its glamour. That's never really been what turned me on. Um, and I'm not an engineer, so it, it wasn't really, you know, excitement about the engineering of the cars. I know a little bit, but I, I'm, it's not what thrilled me. What thrilled me, because I do love sport, but what thrilled me was the, because I am a petrol head, the, the combination of sport with cars. And although obviously I never want anybody to um, to come to any harm, but the admiration of the daring as well and the sheer speed. And if you think about it, when it, when I loved the sport and you're talking about the Saints, so it is that kind of era, the late 60s and early 70s, when I fell in love great with show, sport. Great show. Great show. But, of course, the, 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 the sad thing was that it was extremely dangerous. We did lose a lot of um, drivers. And the circuits were... I mean, if you look at some of those old photographs, you just look at the trees and all the rest of it. And you mentioned Jim Clark, who, um, who of course, died in a terrible way in, at Hockenheim when he did go into the trees. Uh, and I wouldn't call it glamorous. I'd call it heroic. Fair enough. That's me told. No, it isn't <laughs> at all. I was just bringing out another thing. No, no, no. It's a, it's a very fair point. Well, you actually tied in very well to my next question. Uh, speaking of heroics and people flying the banner of change within the sport with all the changes Jackie Stewart and all the drivers panels have brought forward on safety emphasis, you know, there are now other areas that the paddock are looking at addressing, uh, utilizing their driver, drivers as ambassadors. Uh, I actually read an article you wrote in October of last year in your views on the We Races One initiative. And at the time, you said that Lewis has an almost Marmite, quote-unquote, reaction 
do you feel that him being the ambassador for that has kind of helped, or excuse me, hurt that message and muddied it? And where can F1 perpetuate the message and get it out there correctly and drive the points they're trying to make home without it being so ambiguous almost? I'm an enormous Lewis Hamilton fan. I'm an enormous Lewis Hamilton fan. I rate him on track. I rate him off track. I think he's the best uh, off track. I think he's, uh, you know, um, incredibly impressive. And I've known him for quite a while and seen him go from boy to man, really, I suppose you could say. And the extent to which he has taken on board um, uh, the diversity and inclusion and, and, uh, uh, and of course, end racism and all that that he's taken on board... uh, is fantastic. When I said he was Marmite, uh, I meant some people love him and some people don't. I love him. So uh, I, I don't want to get into why I think some people might not like him, but I don't think it's for a good reason. It, it's not defensible, no. So I think he's a, a wonderful ambassador for the sport, and I, I genuinely think that uh, we will, when he finally hangs his helmet up, whenever that will be, I'd be interested to see what he does do. But I think it'll be interesting and worth watching. And he will not be stilled. He will continue to do things using his platform um, for the good of mankind. I do think that. I do think that. And I hope that doesn't sound too naive. I don't think it does. I think that he has taken on board the mantle of his fame and his platform and the fact that he is the only black driver. But, in, you know, he does actually also champion other diversity and inclusion elements. It's well known. I'm a gay man and I'm a, 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 I'm a um, founder ambassador of Racing Pride, which exists to um, further the interests of LGBTQ plus people in most sport, whether they be young carters who are struggling with perhaps bullying, which still sometimes exists, or whether they are people in carting who need to be educated not to do that bullying or to make sure that that bullying doesn't occur, or whether they are engineers or mechanics in their 40s or 50s who have been closeted for 30 years and now feel they can't come out because how could I, having worked for whoever it is, Williams or McLaren or whoever it is for 20 years, I can't now admit it. Well, you can. You can if you want to. And Racing Pride exists to help you. And I did a tweet not very long ago about that subject, about Racing Pride. And lo and behold, Lewis Hamilton retweeted it. Now, that was remarkable in a number of ways. One, one, it meant that six million people saw my tweet, which is not a a common occurrence. But also, you think about it for a second. There is a 30-something heterosexual black superstar as rich as you could possibly ever want to be retweeting a middle-aged middle-class gay man he didn't do it to be cool and probably there may have been some of the other marmite people who thought what the hell is he doing retweeting that but he did it because he believed in it he did it because he actually believes in diversity and inclusion in every aspect and I take my hat off to him. One of your recent 
most recent achievements is, has obviously been the work that you've done with W Series. And I felt absolutely privileged to have been a part of W Series. I, I wrote about W Series. I previews, race reviews, driver interviews. I, I enjoyed every single minute of it. But how did the idea of, of W Series actually come around? Because um, a lot of our followers know of W Series, but may not actually know how the idea um, and how it all came to, into fruition. Well, it, the idea was Catherine Bonmuir, the current, still the current uh, chief executive, and um, she's a sports lawyer and financier. She worked in football, cricket, and sports like that. And um, then she had a baby quite late in life. She was forty-five when she had a baby, and she'd been incredibly hardworking and uh, and industrious and successful. And suddenly, she was sitting, you know, with a nipper, and. Um, she began to think about what she was going to do with her career. And she'd always been a sports fan. She never worked in motor racing, but she began to wonder why it was that there had really been no successful women in motorsport, by and large. And she began to think about it and make plans. And in the end, she got uh, a number of people involved. Sean Wadsworth, who's the largest single shareholder, and his best friend, David Coulthard. And David Coulthard got me involved, and Dave Ryan, who, of course, had worked at McLaren for 34 years as team manager and sporting director. And I knew well as well. So we, the, this kind of ex-McLaren crew kind of uh, joined. And I was a bit sceptical at first. I thought, do I really want to be doing this? You know, I've worked with Lewis Hamilton and Jensen Button and Fernando Alonso in Formula One, and we won world championships and all the rest of it. Do I want to be working with these girls, some of whom I don't know, Formula Three cars? <clears throat> but actually, very soon I became evangelistic about it. And I still think it's uh, one of the best things I've done in my career. And, you know, once you begin to think about it and you realise that, Formula One has been in existence for 71 years and it's always been open to men and women throughout that period. But that in terms of those who have actually started a championship Formula One Grand Prix, out of the nearly 900-odd drivers who have done that, only two have been women. And it's not because of capability, it's because of opportunity. So we wanted to try and improve the opportunity, and we did. And W Series has only had one season so far. Obviously, it's on the Formula 1 platform this year. Had to take a sabbatical last year because of COVID. But those six races were fantastic. There were 20 drivers. There'll be 20 drivers this year. And they simply wouldn't have had a chance. I mean, I'll just give you one last anecdote on this subject. Um, Alice Powell. Alice Powell had been successful in Formula Renault, good driver in her very early 20s and so on. And then she just ran out of money, ran out of money. And as a result of that, she had to stop. And that meant just stop entirely. She stopped for three and a half years. And she ended up working as a builder's mate for her dad. Her dad, by the way, just a normal builder. He's the kind of person that would, um, you know, build a shed in your garden. Anyway, we said, do you want to come and race for us in W Series? She said, do I ever? Yes, I do. 
And the very first race of W Series was at Hockenheim in May 2019. And she was on the podium, having not raced for three and a half years. But the week before, she'd been helping her dad build a urinal in a B&B. And he'd been doing the building, and all she'd been doing is taking a sledgehammer to the old one and taking the rubble out in a wheelbarrow. Then she got on the plane to Hockenheim and went and stuck it on the podium. That is the kind of story that is why W Series needs to exist. And what a race it was. What a race. I absolutely loved that race. It was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you did, you've touched on um, female drivers in F1, but when, it, when are we going to see a, drive, a female driver, in your opinion, um, enter the Formula One championship again? I couldn't tell you when. Um, it may well not be one of the drivers who is currently in W Series. I mean, some of the faster drivers, we, we, we obviously just mentioned Alice Powell, um, knocking 30, poor old girl. And, um, and you know, another one of the very fastest drivers there, uh, Emma Kimilainen, I think he's 31 and is a mother. And um, they're not going to be in Formula One. Let's be honest about it. They're not. If they were 31-year-old um, men uh, driving extremely well in Formula 3, they wouldn't make it to Formula 1. That's not going to happen. We realise that. So we have to look at the younger ones. And I think Marta Garcia, who is probably now 19, I would say, you might need to check that. But um, uh, very quick, great potential. I'm not saying she's going to be in Formula 1. Um, it might be that the next or first woman for all these years who enters Formula One is now 15 and and will be somebody who I would think and hope does use W Series as a stepping stone to gain the experience uh, and to race on the Formula One platform, but in Formula Three cars. Um, but so much of it is about money. Uh, we know that, you know, international single-seater motorsport has become a bit of a... It, it, it's difficult in that sense. It's, it is very difficult for, for drivers uh, to, to get on. And um, often with girls, it was hard, seems to have been harder because they didn't... You might think they would get the sponsorship and the brakes, but they don't seem to or hadn't seemed to is what we'd noticed. So W Series exists also to organically... Um, shine a light on the issue and also to encourage youngsters young girls to say to their mums and dads instead of saying buy me a pony I want to go show jumping buy me a cart I want to go and organically if a larger number of young girls do that then surely a larger number will percolate their way up through because at the moment there are girls who go karting and they're as good as the boys but they're outnumbered but if the numbers were uh, better balanced and they were more represented then who knows what might happen mm -hmm. all i can tell you is that when it finally happens whether it's in two years or four years or six years or eight years when you're sitting uh on your sofa on a sunday afternoon and you hear the following broadcast you hear Today, in Monte Carlo, 
Jenny Jenkins won the Monaco Grand Prix. Second was Lance Stroll. Third was Sebastian Vettel. Then she will become instantly the biggest star in the whole world. That's worth working for, isn't it? Yes, yes. It really is. Um, those of our listeners, and you've, you've just touched upon it as well, is that you recently wrote a book. And I actually have it here. I've, I've read the first two and a half chapters of it, and I am hooked already. I can't read more than one book at once because I've just finished my Bernie Eccleston book. So I started... A bit different. A little bit different. Yeah, a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's gripping and it's beautifully written. Even even in the first couple of chapters, I'm reading it. I, I couldn't, I just can't put it down. But um, tell us a bit about... It's extremely the... sweet. Really, I'm very chuffed. I'm very touched. Oh. <laughs> I really am. It means a lot. But just tell us a little bit about the, the plot line and what sort of motivated you and inspired you to write it. My mother... God rest her, is, uh, was a novelist. Um, and her mother, my grandmother, was a novelist. And so I have, uh, I was brought up around books, brought up to read voraciously and love books. I started in Formula One as a writer, as a journalist, and I loved the word smithery. I loved the weighing of the words and, and, and finding a way to, to bring out the characters of of the characters I was, people I was writing about, whether it was Michael Schumacher or Damon Hill, Big Hackenden, back in, in that era. And um, so I loved that. And then I immersed myself in working for teams. And then my chapter at McLaren came to an end. And I didn't immediately embark on W Series. I had a few months where I was thinking what to do. And... I thought to myself, I know, I'll write a novel. It's in my blood, and I think I have an idea. And I'm not necessarily particularly skint, so I don't particularly need to earn money from it. I'll have to earn money again, which I now thankfully am. Thank you, Mr. Strong. But, um, but, but uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily an immediate priority. And I thought... I have an opportunity to write something and I would like proceeds to go to charity because my mother has died and I started an appeal, the Bernadine Bishop appeal, that was her name, Bernadine Bishop. So I decided to write a book, all proceeds of which would go to charity and they they are. And luckily the money's rolling in nicely. So um, all the royalties are going to, going, going to charity. Uh, to the Bernadine Bishop appeal, which... Um, which fundraises for Click Sergeant, which is a cancer charity for children. And, I mean, what could be more deserving than a charity that works with children who have cancer? So that was the reason. Then what to write? Well, I'm a gay man and I'm 58. So that means that I was alive and lived through, but many didn't, the crisis of HIV AIDS in the late 80s and early 90s. And I lost many friends. Uh, and I also volunteered for an organisation called London Lighthouse, which at that time was the largest HIV AIDS centre in the world. It doesn't exist anymore. 
it's the London Museum of Brands now, the same building. Isn't that a sign of the times, how things have changed? Anyway, at that time, it was like the First World War. You know, um, young men were dying. Uh, uh, it's a bit like this series you may have watched on Channel 4 called It's a Sin. And young men were dying in their late teens or early 20s. Um, and it was like the First World War. I mean, the First World War, of course, those who died were celebrated and venerated and later decorated. <clears throat> but some of the young men who died of HIV, AIDS in the late 80s and early 90s died despised and rejected, um, disgraced, lonely. I mean, really very, very sad, isn't it? Very, very sad. Now, that is the narrative book backdrop of my book. I've now made it sound like the most single depressing book that you could ever possibly read. But I really think it isn't. That is the narrative backdrop. But the central narrative cell, C-E-L-L cell, is a family, mum, dad and son. And there are three other main characters. I've always wanted to write a novel. I have written a novel. Um, you know, if I wanted to open a restaurant, I'd want to open the kind of restaurant that I'd want to eat in. So when you write a novel, you want to kind of write the kind of novel that you'd want to read. So for me, a small number of characters, a lot of dialogue. The action starts straight away. Emma, you will confirm. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's not, when I say action, I mean, it's not gunslinging action. It's just that even in chapter one, you probably go, ooh. Oh. I, I made that exact face. <laughs> <laughs> and then in chapter two, when you realise that a rather cataclysmic mistake has been made, you probably make a, an even more accentuated version of that face. Would you agree, Emma? Yeah, I would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to set up, I always love dramatic irony. So there is a cataclysmic error, which most of the characters are unaware of but the reader is aware of, and one of the characters is aware of. And everything unfolds from that cataclysmic mistake. And there are some sad things in it. There are some funny things in it. But I wanted to write... I always... There had been a great oeuvre, genre, of books, novels, fictional novels, written about um, HIV AIDS at the time when it was a crisis. And luckily, thank goodness, when antiretroviral meds were invented in the mid-1990s, those novels stopped being written. And I understood why, but I always wanted to write one. I, well, sorry, I always wanted to read one. Again, I'd read a lot of them, the ones that were written at the time, but I wanted to read another one, and no one kept writing one. So I thought if I want to read one, I'll have to write one myself and then read it. <laughs> so that's what I've done. But actually, it turns out that Russell T. Davis was doing the same thing at the same time. Although my book came out before It's a Sin, It's a Sin has been hugely successful on Channel 4. And some people have been very kind. In, uh, for instance, um, uh, Darren Stiles, who's the editor of the men's gay lifestyle magazine Attitude, he tweeted, if you love him, it's a sin, you'll love The Boy Made the Difference, which is my novel. And 
in fact, sales did increase as a result of uh, it's a sin being um, bad, which I'm sure was the reason. But it all goes to charity. So there you are. If you've bothered to listen to me so far, rabbiting on about Formula One and all the rest of it, you know, spend £8.99 on um, The Boy Made the Difference. It's available in Amazon or paperback. Sorry, it's a Kindle or paperback via Amazon. And I won't get a penny piece, but the money you spend will go to help children with cancer. And you might even enjoy the read. That's a very I, I'm price. certainly enjoying it. It's, you know, it, it doesn't shy away from from the issues um, from the 80s and 90s with, with HIV and AIDS. And the book is it's certainly an eye-opener for me, even though I've only read the first few chapters. Um, I wasn't, I, I was born in 1984, so I don't remember... Um, you know all of, all of you know what happened with with HIV and AIDS. I my mum and dad remember, but I I don't. I was far too young. But do you think it's it's important to show people who hadn't necessarily lived through it uh, the true reality of it? Absolutely. My husband is younger than me. He's in his thirties, and so you know, like you, he he didn't really know about that. He he, he heard of it but he didn't really know what it was like. And I suppose when I got to know him and love him and and, and his friends, who are his age, um, I began to realise that they really didn't know what it was like for gay men my age when we were their age. Uh, and it wasn't fun. And I, I began to tell them, they were like, really? Yes, yes, that's what it was like, yes. Mm. And... So that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book to 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 do that and and to via a fictional vehicle, um, perhaps help tell that story, which it's a sin, as of course has done on a much larger and grander scale. But I also wanted to do it as in a way as a tribute to some of the people who I remember and miss, and and I think that um, some of them. You know, it's an extraordinary thing, dying young. It's a terrible, terrible thing. It's not much worse in the world. And I think the courage that they showed, some of the people I remember, um, who, by the way, were the kind of people who would be perfectly capable of having a ridiculous hissy fit about having their Reebok classics scuffed on the way to heaven, but nonetheless faced their deaths with enormous fortitude. And actually, I find that contrast very moving and um, touching. And yes, I think knowledge is important. And if people find out about things like that and learn more about things like that, it's good for everyone. It's good for the planet. You can only benefit from learning. Mm, That's fascinating. I mean, I was was born in 2000, so I've... Just briefly, I've never, you know, I was never told about this in school. In fact, I vividly remember an RE lesson when it was about that much of a paragraph. Um, and, and also in my lifetime, the treatment of gay people generally has been, you know, I haven't had to live through the, you know, the massive uh, sort of um, culture of, I don't know, just general dislike or maybe that's too soft a word. Um, so it's... I think that sounds absolutely fascinating because for people like me who are, you know, who might be listening to this podcast, for example, because obviously they're interested in F1, maybe that's 
a takeaway that well I mean I certainly wasn't expecting and I I hope a lot of younger people weren't but we'll, well there you go you see more than one string to one's bow it's not a bad idea is it <laughs> write a novel everyone who's listening have a go at it <laughs> I don't think mine would uh, would sell many copies, but I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. <laughs> Another work that you are attributed to, sir, is the autobiographical Emma. Oh yeah, you're credited with. Uh, after having read that, I just I have to fanboy a little bit about that. Were you approached to help with that book, or was that something that you sought out to undertake and get involved with? I've never earned any money out of any books because I didn't earn money out of this one either. And that's because I was working at McLaren in 2013 and I began to think about how we were going to plan to celebrate the 40-year anniversary of the team's first world championship, which was Emerson Fittipaldi in 1974. And we didn't have a lot of budget. You might find that surprising, but, you know... Formula One teams spend a lot of money, but it doesn't mean they always have a lot of budget for individual projects. And Ron Dennis, bless him, not an enormous fan of anything that happened at McLaren prior to the autumn of 1980, if I can put it that way. Um, In other words, when he took over. So um, not particularly uh, uh, thrilled about the idea of spending a lot of money on a promotion of a 1974 event. But we knew that we had to celebrate it. And the race that most closely approximated to the 40-year anniversary was Monza, Monza 2014. Um, Because, of course, Emerson won the championship at Watkins Glen in 1974, but it was in early September as well. So we worked out that we would try and celebrate McLaren 40, as we unoriginally called it, at Monza. And I thought, I'd love to get Emo there. I'd love to get him there. But, you know, he lives in Miami and he's going to need to be flown there and he's probably going to want a big day rate, you know. Why not? Everybody's in the business of being paid, except me, it would appear. But, um, although I am paid, but not for writing books. Anyway, um, so I, I, obviously I knew Emerson and I, uh, put something to him. I said, look, if I wrote a book for you and got it published via my old mates at Haymarket, um, and I wouldn't take a fee, uh, and you can share the profits with Haymarket on all sales, then will you come to the 2014 Italian Grand Prix to be celebrating not only the launch of the book, because we'll do that as part of McLaren 40, but also to be, you know, I was there and McLaren 40, I'm the man and blah, 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 and be interviewed by journalists and so on. He said, yes, I will. So that's how we managed to get Emerson Fittipaldi to celebrate McLaren 40, um, by me writing a book for him, which he he could share the profits with Haymarket. Nothing to do, so McLaren didn't, wasn't, didn't have to pay him. Actually, it was an enormous pleasure, an enormous pleasure to write it with him. We did it on the telephone. I just rang him a number, you know, lots of times. And um, the extraordinary thing is his memory. You, you know, his memory for detail 
incredible detail. You know, this, you know, the gearbox failed in the spare car at Mossport in the 75, but luckily, you know, all that stuff. You, I'd say, are you reading this from some diary? No, 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 no. I remember all of these. <laughs> Absolutely all of them. Anyway, uh, I'll tell you a little story because I'm a huge Emerson fan, um, both driver and man. But during the course of um, the time we were both writing it, his father and my mother both died. And the only part of the book that I didn't write, he said, I'm going to write uh, an author's note. He said, I said, well, I'll ghost that for you, like all the rest of it. He said, no, 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 no. I'll get someone else to ghost that for me. I thought, that's a bit weird. Why would you do that? Okay. Anyway, he got someone else to ghost that for him. And in it, I'm going to, I'll read the last paragraph of it. It's very short. Just the last, last paragraph. And this was a surprise to me, which he included in the author's note, or the author's preface. He said... Yes, and he says that um, Matt Bishop wrote it with me. We wrote it together throughout 2013 and the early part of 2014. And although we'd met each other quite a few times before that, we've grown closer via our many phone calls in recent years. As we were writing the book in 2013, both of us received unhappy news. On the 11th of March 2013, I lost my beloved father, Wilson Fittipaldi Sr., a sports broadcaster who first instilled in me a love of racing. He was at Monza commentating for Brazilian TV as I crossed the line to win the 1972 Italian Grand Prix and become Brazil's first ever Formula One world champion. And on the 4th of July 2013, Matt lost his beloved mother, Bernadine Bishop, a skilled and sensitive novelist who first instilled in him a love of writing she would have been so pleased and proud to read the book that her son and I have created together. It's dedicated to both of them. To Wilson and Bernadine, let perpetual light shine upon them, and may they rest in peace. That's Thank lovely. you for sharing that. That's, that, that's really, really touching. Um, thank that's you. Emerson, you see. That's the side of Emerson you don't always see. Mm. So contrary to the nature that we're all expected to believe, I guess is the way I'll phrase that. You know, the hard-nosed, you know, bare-knuckle racer. But, you know, same way that uh, the boy who made the difference and that message all come together is that everybody has a soul. There's a purpose behind everything. And everybody can achieve a higher sense of purpose. And I think you are a keen embodiment of that. Well, that's very sweet of you. Um, I would reject it on the basis that uh, that uh, it's far too kind. But, uh, you know, when all one can do is do one's best. Well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And, and I appreciate you spending the, well, more, more time than we planned together. Um, and and uh, it's it's been a really interesting insight. So thank you very much um, yeah. on behalf well, of I everyone. 
I'm, I'm touched, uh, uh, you know, the four of you spending your time as well. Um, and we, we, we wish you the absolute best with Aston Martin this year. I certainly can't wait to see, firstly, what the car looks like. Um, and I know that it's, uh, I've seen so many renders online of, is it going to be this shade of green? Is it going to be this shade? Um, Matt, what shade is it going to be? It's going to be green, dude. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Brilliant. I tried, I tried. Um, okay. But no, thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. All the best to you.